Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, this week I'm going to start off the program with another biblical principle as we are studying Bible prophecy this week. Jesus warned us that false Christ and false prophets will come and will attempt to deceive even God's elect. The best way to guard yourself against falsehood and false teachers is to know the truth. To spot a counterfeit, study the real thing. Any believer who correctly handles the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, and who makes a careful study of the Bible can identify false doctrine. On today's program, Rick, we're going to talk to Dr. Rob Congdon about this, about the inerrancy of Scripture, which is a very hot topic in the Christian world, on the Twitter world, if you will. Plus, David Dolan is going to go in-depth, not only on Israel, but on Iran, and you won't want to miss that. And Dr. Jimmy DeYoung was starting a new series on the book of Daniel. Well, let's get started with our first, Rick, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. As usual, I have Ken Timmerman with us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst with experience from all over the world, and he joins us every week. You can find out more about him by going to his website, KenTimmerman.com. There you could see his latest stories, as well as sign up for his newsletter. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, we've got a variety of stories to get at this week, but we'll start with NATO. Many things taking place during this NATO summit that was attended by President Biden this week. If you could give us an update, what took place at this summit? What is important that we need to know from it? Well, it was a big, it was a big event. And for the first time, you had Zelensky come as a invitee to the summit, not just crashing the gates, but he was actually invited to the summit. And the NATO members agreed to invite uh, Ukraine eventually to join NATO. Now, the UK Defense Minister Ben Wallace made very clear that that decision has been made, but no timetable has been put to it. So they're not saying Ukraine will join NATO next year or in five years. Uh, one uh, one uh, prime minister, I believe, in Finland said it would be in 2035. So that's quite a ways down the road. But again, they did issue a communique saying they had made the decision to invite Ukraine to join NATO. And that is a big deal. Well, looking at it from that angle, uh, I'd like your comment on an interview done by former military general David Petraeus, who says that uh, Putin started this war in Ukraine to make Russia great again, but instead he is making NATO great. Uh, I would say not so fast. Uh, not so fast. Uh, we learned this week also that uh, the Biden administration is sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. And President Biden said, we're doing this because we've run out of ammunition. Uh, former President Trump responded almost immediately on Truth Social by saying, wow, that was an incredible leak of classified information telling our potential enemies that we've run out of ammunition, a very bad thing to have done. I'm not sure this has made NATO stronger. Uh, the fissures inside the alliance between the Germans and the French, uh, the Poles, the Hungarians and the Brits, they're, they're really two uh, camps and they are divided on how much support NATO should give to Ukraine. They poured in an awful lot of armor and artillery, as we've seen over the past six months. And apparently, Rick, that new equipment has just been chewed to pieces by the Russians during the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which now appears to be faltering. Uh, the Ukrainians seem to have been pushed back uh, on all of these fronts that they've tried to advance on. 
So I don't see this as a shining moment for NATO. I see this rather as an attempt to keep uh, keep the gang together. Well, the other big story coming out of this summit is that Turkey has seemingly done an about face and is going to let Sweden in. Now, I know this report that we are doing today is you are in Sweden, so you have on the ground knowledge and information. What can you tell us about Sweden's entrance into NATO? Well, the, the Swedes obviously have been pushing it, pushing this for some time. And, and by the way, the Russians are more worried about Sweden's entry into NATO than they were about Finland, even though Finland has an 800 mile land border with Russia. Uh, the Russians have a long relationship with Finland. Remember, we used to use Finland as a verb to say a country had been Finlandized, which meant neutralized or neutered. Uh, so the Russians seem to think they can control the Finns, but not the Swedes. The Swedes have a very small uh, armed forces, about 35,000 active members of the armed forces. However, they do have a quite respectable air force and they have an air force base out in the sea on an island just across from St. Petersburg. And that's one of the things I think the Russians are most worried about. Look, what happened was a was a three cornered deal, Rick. Uh, Erdogan, who had been holding this up, he made an immediate deal with the Swedes. Uh, they, they inked a bilateral agreement uh, ostensibly to fight terrorism, which means to fight the Kurds. 17 articles in this of things that the Swedes pledged to do to essentially expel Turkish members of the PKK. Uh, at the same time, uh, Sweden, Sweden's prime minister went to the United States just before the summit to ask President Biden for help. So the U.S. said, OK, we will release F-16 fighter jets to Turkey to help sweet the deal. I am told that there is a the two more parts to this deal uh, that, number one, Sweden will also push inside the European Union to help Turkey join the EU. This is something the Turks have been trying to do uh, for well over a decade. They've been rebuffed primarily by the French, but also by others, uh, because that would essentially allow anyone who gets into Turkey from any other Muslim country, such as, let's say, Iran, to come into the EU without a visa. And that's something that uh, presents a lot of problems for the Europeans. The fourth uh, piece of this has not yet been talked about a lot in public. There are reports that have emerged from insider sources. They say that uh, President Biden has agreed to extend a, a huge loan to Turkey, somewhere between 10 to $20 billion, uh, to essentially help Erdogan face these enormous economic hurdles uh, that um, uh, have been plaguing his country for several years. Another story, and this is things that we have talked about before in the past, but it just continues to happen. Iran is joining a uh, an economic pact with Moscow and Beijing. Uh, well, that's right. It's called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, we've talked about this for a number of years. It's been in the works. The Iranians have been uh, invited to a number of these meetings with Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, uh, and, and other countries in Central Asia, as well as China and Russia. And now they have formally joined that uh, organization on July 4th, on U.S. Independence Day. What does it mean? It means that Iran will be able to loosen the noose of international sanctions by selling more of its oil, more of its gas, uh, without having the threat of the U.S. impounding ships or, or blocking their exports or impounding the uh, proceeds of those exports. Uh, for example, 
Uh, last year, uh, the Chinese became one of the largest buyers of Iranian oil on the black market. They were getting it at a 25% discount. And this first six months of this year, Iranian exports, oil exports, reached a five-year high. And they reached that five-year high because of this kind of arrangement with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization with Russia, with China, and with those neighbors in Central Asia. Well, we talk about that alliance often, and also if we continue to dig deeper in that this is just an example, especially of China spreading their influence uh, around the world and in the United Nations. Uh, well, I think that's right. And, and the Chinese are on the march. Uh, they're on the march diplomatically, economically, and also politically. Well, as we wrap up uh, today's report, let's just get a, a kind of an after-action report or uh, what should we look at? We talked about the Russian mutiny a couple weeks ago, just a bizarre situation. What's the fallout there? What is uh, going on with Pergozin? And, and what of this I'm hearing of missing Russian generals? Well, first of all, on Pergozin, nobody knows where he is. Uh, the uh, Kremlin is saying that he had a three-hour meeting with Putin a couple of days after his mutiny where he pledged loyalty to Putin. Uh, but since then, he has disappeared from public view. There are rumors that he has been murdered, that he's dead, uh, or that he may be going to exile in some other country, but he has not been seen. That's the one thing I can tell you. Prigozhin has not been seen. The second thing I can tell you is that his men in the Wagner group, these mercenaries, have been surrendering to the Russians. They've been uh, giving up their arms, their heavy weapons, their tanks, their artillery, uh, and have not been brought into the Russian military, as originally a lot of people thought the deal would allow them to be. So they are going back into whatever civilian life they had before. Many of them came out of prisons to become mercenaries for the Wagner group. So it'll be interesting to see if they go back to prison uh, as well. Uh, the third thing that's going on, you mentioned missing Russian generals. These are uh, two generals in particular who were heroes among the troops in Ukraine. General Tsokov, Oleg Tsokov, uh, was the deputy commander of the Southern Military District and uh, in Southern Ukraine. Uh, he was very popular with the troops and he moved into a well-known hotel where other Russian military leaders were staying and the Ukrainians promptly sent a missile into that hotel and blew it up. We don't know for sure if he was killed in that missile attack or just severely wounded, but it was either very bad generalship to move into that hotel or somebody tipped off the Ukrainians that he was there. The second general who died uh, was also popular with the troops. His name was Ivan Popov, and he had accused the Russian general staff, especially the chief of staff, Gerasimov, of essentially betraying his troops on the battlefield. Uh, exactly the same kind of accusation that Prigozhin was making. He has disappeared. We don't know what's happened to him. So there could be, Rick, a purge going on inside the Russian military of officers who have expressed support for Prigozhin, for his criticism of Gerasimov and the Russian general staff. And so this could be payback. So many things taking place in the world. We need a roadmap. We need a guide through it. You do that for us. We appreciate it so much coming to us, reporting to us from Sweden this week. Ken, thank you so much. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure. God bless. Great interview, Ken. Thank you so much. And folks, we're living in what we call the times of the Gentiles. We're going to talk about that today with our Legacy Series and Dr. Jimmy D. Young. Take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Muslim countries are in an uproar after an Iraqi refugee in Sweden burned a Quran on Islamic holiday Eid al-Adha. Muslims consider it blasphemy. There have been arrests in both Sweden and Germany, stopping retaliation terrorist attacks. Now, Sweden's considering making protests burning the Quran illegal. Denise Godwin with International Media Ministry says we need to pray protection for minority Christians who could be targeted. Pray also for the gospel to diffuse anger with Christ's compassion. And substance abuse takes a toll on South Africa's next generation. Drug addictions among young people rival the global average. Gospel workers in South Africa turn to the Lighthouse for help. The Lighthouse takes a biblical approach to addiction recovery. One group already had a program in place, but leaders needed help to get it going. The Lighthouse is raising $5,000 to help kickstart a tent-making initiative. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and we do this every week with our good friend Dave Dolan. He was a journalist and lived over 30 years in Israel. Dave, thank you for joining us. Happy to do so, Rick. Well, Dave, uh, we're going to ask you to go into overtime this week and ask you to come back after the break. And we want to take a deeper dive into the history of the relationship between Israel and Iran and how it has shaped modern-day Israel right now. But before we do that, we'll continue on with our normal Middle East update. Got a few things I'd like to get to. The first is... It looks like, and there are many people, articles coming out in the New York Times, different places, that there is maybe a reassessment of the United States relationship with Israel. Now, this essentially has a lot to do with the relationship of the respective leaders of those countries, but can you talk a little bit about what has been coming up in the news? Yes, different uh, media outlets reported on this during the week, Rick, uh, mostly in the United States, but of course it was covered in Israel. Mainly Thomas Friedman, the New York Times senior um, opinion writer, piece he wrote on Wednesday, uh, exactly a week before Israel's president, President Herzog, is due to visit the United States and speak before the Congress. And I've known Tom since uh, the early 90s uh, when he was the bureau chief for the Times in Jerusalem. And I was with CBS, so we were together at press conferences and different things. 
And we had some discussions, and I felt that he didn't quite understand the Islamic element in the Arab-Israeli conflict, how strong it was, how deep it went. And I, of course, talked about that. That was one of the features of my best-selling book in 91, Holy War for the Promised Land. And he didn't tell me, but he told friends uh, his critique that I was way overemphasizing the role of Islamic fundamentalism, that this new group Hamas that I focused on on eight pages in the book uh, would never amount to anything. And it was the Palestinian Liberation Organization that ran things. and, And, you know, Islam isn't that big a deal. Well, because of that, he expected the Oslo peace process to work. He thought we would have a two state, quote, solution within a decade or so and that everything would calm down. Well, of course, it hasn't worked that way. And the main reason it hasn't is because of that Islamic extremism that basically took over the Gaza Strip, Hamas ruling there. Of course, the clash in Janine between Iranian-backed Muslim militant groups. So, of course, radical Islam plays a big, big role in it. But he said that that Joe Biden is considering a reassessment of relations, that that's inevitable, he wrote. He said that this is because of displeasure with Israel's conduct in several ways. One, that it's building new communities, not communities really, but new apartments, essentially, in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank which he said is an unabashed locking in of a one-state solution, i.e. there will not be a Palestinian state there. Well, I would say to that there already is a Palestinian state in the Gaza Strip, but he said that's one thing. And of course, the judicial reform uh, movement, which I think we'll talk about in a few minutes, that is another impediment. And this is causing uh, the White House to reassess its relations with Israel. But he did point out, as I've mentioned, that the military and strategic relations between Israel and the U.S. are as strong as they have ever been. He mentioned that the last reassessment was in 1975 when Secretary of State Kissinger, who was basically running the show after Nixon resigned, cut off F-15 aircraft sales to Israel and other things. He said, we don't expect that, but we may see a lessening of relations between the two countries. And I would say under Biden, we've already seen that, and it's more to do with with Biden, in my opinion, than it is to do with Netanyahu and his government. Well, that was what I was just going to ask you. This certainly does, at least to a certain extent, seem personal for President Biden. And maybe it's either President Biden or maybe it's those that are advising and uh, working with President Biden in this situation. But I, I see inconsistencies as we look at this situation. A couple of things that you've already mentioned. You talked about the judicial overhaul, which is uh, what they feel is a right-wing overhaul and a takeover of the judicial system. Well, he's heavily critical of the U.S. Supreme Court for what he feels are decisions that he doesn't like. So there seems to be an inconsistency there. And also, even though he cannot have a friendship or a relationship with Netanyahu, he just got through with a visit with Erdogan of Turkey and had high praise for Erdogan, which doesn't make sense when you compare those two leaders. Well, and we could mention the Indian Prime Minister Modi. Uh, We could mention uh, the fact that he says he'll meet with the Chinese leader, Xi, at some point, who, who, you know, they're talking about the repression of the, the Uyghurs in Western China and all of this. So the U.S. has relations with a lot of countries that are not exactly run by super democratic people. But Friedman pointed out, you know, we are also a major supporter of Israel financially and have been really going back to the Camp David peace accords in 1979. But I would point out that we've already given Ukraine in just the last year and a half almost half 
of all of the aid that Israel has received over 35, 40 years, and that's just in a year and a half. Now, of course, there's a war going on, and I understand that, but uh, the aid to Israel is meant to prevent another major Arab-Israeli war. It's meant to keep that very vital region with its oil resources, et cetera, calmer, and that's what Biden says he's trying to do with the nuclear agreement with Iran and trying to keep things a little more stable. So I think, you know, the the argument that Netanyahu is some dictator extremist, that's being made by the ultra left in Israel. There were demonstrations again on Tuesday throughout the country against the judicial reform process. Roads were closed again. Thursday evening, there was a demonstration outside the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem as if the U.S., you know, has anything really to do about it, but against Netanyahu again. There was two demonstrations at his home in Jerusalem and his private home down on the coast. So, you know, this is a, a matter of opinion, and the the legislature did pass the first reading of a new um, version of the judicial reform that would limit uh, the Supreme Court's ability to overturn government decisions because of reasonableness. That's the term they use. Well, this isn't really reasonable what the government is just done, you know, so we're overturning it. And uh, Netanyahu and his allies say that's just, you know, a bit absurd. That's a subjective opinion, what's reasonable and what's not. And uh, he's certainly not bringing in a third world dictatorship and all the things we've been hearing. But of course, Biden is saying, as you said, some of the same things about the U.S. Supreme Court, some of the same things about the Republicans. They're all mega Republicans that are extremists and everybody's white supremacists and all these sorts of things that just don't have any factual basis. So, um, uh, you know, I think Israel will survive this, but uh, there is an onslaught against Netanyahu and a personal dislike for sure between uh, Biden and Netanyahu, as there was between Obama and uh, Netanyahu. Well, one more question before we take our break here. We're looking at this situation. You brought it up earlier. Thomas Friedman, the journalist that we talked about initially, very much in favor of a two-state solution. And we've talked about it on this program. And of course, that's still the official policy of the United States and President Biden, uh, the two-state solution. But realistically, pragmatically, the two-state solution is not something that is going to be pursued anymore. Is that correct? And if so, can you tell me why? Well, it is correct, uh, Rick, and the main reason is Iran, if I can put it that way, but I know we're going to talk about that after the break in more detail. But uh, Netanyahu supported it officially when he got back into office in 2011, I believe it was. He was saying, you know, if we can make this happen, we'll try again, you know, this sort of thing. But again, the Oslo Accords were signed. Had they been abided by the Palestinians, had they not gone to war again in the year 2000, that was under Arafat, then we might have had the negotiations that everybody was pressing for, for a two-state solution. But um, they went back to war. They went back to war because the radical extremists amongst them are strong and getting stronger all the time. And, you know, Israel, in effect, doesn't have a reliable partner to give away land that is right on the doorstep of its major coastal cities, just uh, 20 miles from Tel Aviv, uh, right next to Jerusalem, including part of Jerusalem, its capital city, etc. I'll say it one more time. It takes one party to make war two parties to make peace, but only one party can start a war. And the Palestinians seem determined, at least many of them, as polls have shown, et cetera, to see Israel destroyed. So 
who can Israel reasonably negotiate with here? Well, David, excellent explanation there. And we continue to look at this. We look at it week to week. We appreciate what you do to help us with it. Now you say you're coming back with us in the next half hour to talk about what you kind of just teased when you talk about Iran's role in the current state of affairs in Israel in the modern day nation of Israel. You're going to be back with us in a few minutes? I hope to be. David, I'll be looking forward to this. You know, in Ezekiel 38, in the text, we see the names of the present day nations, or at least a portion of the list of nations that will align themselves against the Jewish state of Israel. This passage is a foretelling of the military action that will happen in the Middle East in the first three months of the coming tribulation period. That's seven years of judgment on this earth in the future. The Battle of Gog and Magog is what the prophet is discussing with us in that passage. It's an alignment of nations that will come to destroy Israel, the Jewish state. And in that passage, we see not only the who, but the when and the what. That which happens during the coming seven-year period of time. Magog is one. That's Russia, Meshach, and Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. That's Turkey. And then in verse 5, Persia is mentioned, which is modern-day Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. That's why we're going to be focusing with David on Iran. That's coming up right after the break, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Later on in this half hour, Dr. Rob Congdon will come and talk to us about the inerrancy of the scripture. What does that mean and why is it so very important? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will come with the Legacy Series and start a new section on the book of Daniel, the times of the Gentiles. A definition for the times of the Gentiles, anytime the Gentile world is in control of the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. Well, as we said before the break, we were talking about this Ezekiel 38 war between Gog and Magog and the nations that are involved that will align and come against Israel, which Persia is one of them. Persia, which is today modern-day Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, the other two nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38 besides Russia, Turkey, Persia, Ethiopia, which would be Somalia, Sudan, and Ethiopia, and Libya are also nations that will join in this alignment to attack Israel. These nations make up the who in this passage. The when is revealed to us in two verses, verses 8 and 11. 
These verses speak of the time when the Jewish people come back into the land in the last days and are dwelling safely in the land. They will also be living in unwalled villages. Both terms are referring to a time when there is peace in the land. It will not be the time when Jesus has brought peace, but a time of a pseudo-peace, one that is short-lived peace. This peace comes when the Antichrist has established a peace in the land, which is the very beginning of the tribulation. The what is the unfolding of the war to destroy the Jewish people and take the land that God has given the Jews and these nations attack Israel. God intercedes, verses 18 to 23. Couple this with the verses found in Ezekiel 39, verses 1 to 6, and you come to an understanding that the Lord protects his chosen people. Well, Rick, let's get to David Dolan and a timeline of the state of Iran. Well, that's right, Jimmy. David has agreed to join us here in this second half hour, and we want to get more of a historical political view. Now, Israel and Iran, or Persia, that would be the biblical name there, they've had a relationship for thousands of years, and they're going to have a relationship in the future. The Bible says prophetically, Iran is going to play a role in God's end time scenario. But as we look at the modern day state of Israel, David, can you tell us and give us some context, some historical background to Iran's relationship with Israel? Well, Rick, I would say that if Iran had not been taken over by Muslim fundamentalists in 1979, the Arab-Israeli, the Muslim-Israeli war would have ended a long time ago. The Palestinian conflict would have simmered way, way down, and we'd have a prosperous uh, Middle East. The Abraham Accords would have taken place many years ago. Very year that Israel signed the Camp David Peace Treaty with Egypt, which officially ended its war with the biggest Arab country was the very year that Ayatollah Khomeini took over Iran in 1979. So peace was coming with the Arabs and war was beginning with the Persians who are not Arabs. Their language is not Arabic. They're mostly Shiite Muslims, the minority sect in Islam, as opposed to the Arabs, mostly Sunnis. But it happened. Khomeini took over. Jimmy Carter looked the other way at the time. The president of the U.S. uh, more or less supported it, actually, thinking maybe he'll be a better leader. The Shah, the previous leader, uh, pro-Western, pro-Israel, got along with Europe, etc., was overthrown. And uh, he was charged with some corruption. Well, that's not new in pretty much every government around the world, but you see a lot of it in the Middle East for sure. And that was true. But he was a pretty stable, pretty democratic leader overall. Khomeini came in, began the Iranian revolution, brought in all sorts of very radical people, began the creation of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, several years later, in, in 1981, founded the Islamic Jihad Palestinian branch, uh, totally under Iran's thumb. The next year in Lebanon, I was there at the time, as I've mentioned before, founded the Hezbollah militia, uh, anti-Israel Shiite fundamentalist uh, militia that is now a major military force in the area. And, of course, this was followed by Hamas. Uh, being founded in uh, 1987, in December, and uh, on and on. And as I mentioned in the last segment, I 
focused on Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Iran and the role that radical Islam was already playing then, just a little over 10 years after the Iranian Revolution when my book came out. And of course, here we are decades later, and Iran is stronger than ever. Its influence is greater than ever. It has these proxy forces all around. And because it vows all the time, and I point that out, it doesn't threaten, it vows that Israel will be destroyed. There cannot be a Zionist state in the Middle East. Jews cannot rule over Muslims, as the Quran plainly states, and it does. He's right about that. They're right about that. That they will war until the end. And that, of course, has given the radical Palestinian groups new hope that they can overthrow Israel, get rid of Israel entirely, and have a one-state solution of their own, which is a Palestinian state in place of Israel. It's given other radical groups in the region, in Yemen and in other places, the same hopes and and not just hopes but backing financial backing and ideological backing and training and all of these things so Iran has definitely been the player that has kept the Israeli Muslim conflict the Jewish Muslim conflict if you will going and resurgent in recent years and uh, as we've been saying at any time we could have a full-out war in the region and it will be because of Iran and its radical policies and its allies that have that are going along and supported by them well since that time David and we've talked about it on this program it looks like the sole reason for existence of Iran is to destroy the Jewish state of Israel and and again we also have talked about they call Israel the the small satan they call the United States the great satan so they have an agenda not only across the middle east but throughout the world don't they they do Rick and if i can comment for a second on the spiritual dimensions there too you know we had Adolf Hitler a german leader adopt an ideology, the Aryan theology, that the white Aryan people are the superior people on earth and should be ruling the whole world, and he was going to do that, the Third Reich, and all over the earth, he was. this was his goal, and he achieved a conquest of uh, almost half of Europe at one point, and with some allies, and, and war in Africa, and war, you know, contributed to war all over the world. Well, uh, Aryan comes from Iran. The Aryan ideology is that words are related. It originated in Persia, in ancient Persia. And with the defeat of Hitler and with that ideology ending in the West for the most part, the spiritual forces behind it. And what was Hitler's main goal? Destroy the Jewish people. What is Iran's main goal? Destroy the Jewish people. And I will say that, not just Israel. They make plain that Jews around the world are their enemies, and they've launched attacks. In fact, the Israeli defense minister said this week in a speech in Azerbaijan that uh, there had been about 150 Iranian-plotted attacks around the world against Jewish communities that had been thwarted So in just recent years. So it is a demonic force from hell. It's residing right now, I would say, and this is a strong statement, but in Tehran, the same anti-Israel force uh, that existed under Hitler before, anti-Jewish force. And, um, you know, Israel has an enemy. It didn't invite Hitler to attack the Jewish people of Europe. It didn't invite uh, Khomeini, et cetera, to set up these militias and to do all this stuff and nefarious activity. But uh, the spiritual forces behind it are doing that. And I want to make clear, I'm not saying Muslims are, are devil worshipers or anything like that. This is an extremist demonic stronghold within Islam, especially within Shiite Islam, that is 
headquartered in Iran, and uh, you know Israel just has to deal with it. And you've talked about it on this program many times before. This is a battle of whose God is God, is it not? It is exactly. And uh, it's popular today to say that the God of the Bible is the God of the Quran and everybody's worshiping the same God. But you have a problem in the Quran where the God of the Quran is quoted as condemning the God of the Bible in several verses. I won't go into that, but it's there. And of course, you know, uh, Muslims must uh, wage jihad against the infidels that are specifically laid out as Jews and Christians until the end of time. In the end, Islam will dominate the world, and Muhammad is the greatest prophet, not Jesus. Jesus will come back, but only to proclaim that Muhammad is the greatest prophet, and he's not the final uh, guy here. So, you know, they are not the same religions. They have some basic differences, to say the least, some spiritual differences. And if I can say it this way, one is from heaven, one is not. So, um that's just the way it is. That, again, doesn't mean Muslims are evil people, uh, but there's a force that works there in in that, um, as it has within Christianity at times through history. We have to be honest about that. The same sort of warlike spirit, jihad sort of spirit has crept up uh, at different times in history in Christian countries and whatever. So it's not only the Muslims, but today, today, right now, that's the situation. Whose God is God? It's not both gods of the Quran and the Bible. It's one or the other. And that's the final issue here, the bottom line issue here. It certainly is, David. And as you talk about this, I'm thinking we've had Sharam Hadian on the program. His family fled Iran when the Shah was deposed and the, uh, the Khomeini's came in. And he's talked about the Christian church in Iran, and it is actually growing. Against all odds, the Christian community in Iran is growing, as sometimes it often does when it faces persecution. So we need to pray for the Christian community in Iran that it will continue to grow. But also, and I'll give you the final word here as we uh, conclude this topic, but uh, we also need to realize that the Bible says in Ezekiel that Iran is going to play a role in the end time scenario, and it's hard not to look at this situation and all the things that you have just told us and not see that stage being set for that end time scenario to begin at any moment. Well, absolutely. We need to pray for the Christians there and the Muslims that don't want to be under this oppressive force. But as you said, the prophecies do indicate, well, they say it outright in Ezekiel that Iran will be Persia, will be one of the allies of Gog in the invasion of Israel in the very last days. So we can assume that the radical government there is not going to change, sadly. But, uh, you know, God's purposes are unfolding, and he'll bring us to the final conclusion that the Bible tells us, and that is that the king will return to Jerusalem, the king of kings, and rule from there, and all the earth will then be at peace. So we long for that time. We certainly do. Well, David, thank you for coming back in this second half hour. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Rick. God bless. Great job, David. And folks, I would get David's book. Uh, you can Google David Dolan and it will come up and you can order his book. And I would suggest that you get it. All of the information that he gave on today's program is there. And this passage in Ezekiel 38 and 39 helps us to understand why the nations of the Middle East and the Islamic world hate the Jews and want to destroy the Jewish state. These nations will continue to do what they can to eliminate Israel until this prophecy is fulfilled. 
Well, Rick, we have another issue that we want to talk about, and I've asked you to get Dr. Rob Congdon on the program today. We have an attack on the very scriptures that we use and we hold so dearly. It's the foundation of our faith, and I want to talk to Dr. Rob Congdon about an issue. It's an issue, as I started out the program today, that involves a false teacher. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Rob Congdon with us. He's a frequent guest on this program. He's somebody that we talk to when we like to look at issues and things concerning theology, doctrine, and he has a long connection with our ministry. His ministry is Congdon Ministries International. You can go to their website at www.cmi-tv.org. Dr. Congdon, thank you for being with us. Oh, it's always great to be with you. Enjoy the times we have together. Absolutely. Well, Jimmy and I wanted to talk to you. We've been noticing uh, a concerning movement. We're going to start talking about it on this program. We wanted to have a discussion about a movement that we have seen within the American church, within several prominent pastors in the church, and they are talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. And essentially, they're saying that you don't have to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You have to just be a follower of Jesus. Could you give us a bit of an overview of this subject? Oh, certainly. Be glad to. Um, One of the things I've noticed in this, what I I believe is a very prevalent movement coming within Christian churches today, and exemplified many ways by the teaching of New Calvinism, but it goes even beyond that. And that's to really start focusing at uh, diminishing the value of the scriptures and the inerrancy or the truth of the scriptures. In other words, are they what we have in our hand, what God has written? And one of the first things that I've noticed, uh, it seems very slight, but if you start thinking it through, it has eternal consequences. And that is they're calling us or people who attend their churches as followers of Jesus. And I find that this term is not only reflecting the, the weakening of the value of the scriptures, but it actually is striking at the very heart of what is a true believer in Jesus Christ. When they say follower, uh, the first thing I think about is what is a follower? It's someone who's an adherent or a devotee of a particular person. In other words, they kind of follow what that person says, what their cause is, and what their activities are. Follower has two dangers in it. One is it all depends on what person you decide to follow. And secondly, a follower is someone who follows a leader's teaching as long as they're find that teaching acceptable to them. And I think that well speaks of today's modern movement because many followers are willing to follow the example of Jesus Christ, not necessarily obey what he actually says in the scriptures, but to follow his example. And if they change their mind, decide they're going to follow something else like Islam or Buddhism, they can switch. It isn't a permanent situation whereas a believer is a permanent position. Once we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, that he is the one who paid for our sins, died for them, rose from the dead to prove the sin debt was paid, we become part of him. He indwells us, and we indwell him. Therefore, Jesus Christ is within us. The Holy Spirit's within us. And therefore, that's a permanent relationship. That's not just following somebody and kind of admiring them and trying to mimic them. That's actually to becoming changed into a Christ-likeness 
So it's a major difference, that term. And it seems minor initially. It seems like, well, it's just a nice term that won't offend anybody. Well, we have to say we're a believer because that's a difference than just a follower. Well, it certainly is a difference. And a follower versus a believer, it seems very small, but there is a huge difference there. And a big part of that difference is as we determine what our beliefs are, where does the authority come from for us to develop our beliefs? Absolutely. And it's crucial. And I I do want to just mention here, in the scriptures, it tells us, in case somebody says, where's this dwelling idea comes from? Uh, John wrote in chapter four, he says, hereby we know that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us his spirit. Never says we're followers of his. It says we dwell in him and he in us. Now, the next question, as you've already suggested, is uh, how do we know what Jesus Christ, our Lord, wants us to do. How do we know the will of God? And that means you've got to get it from one of two things. And some of these same people in this movement say, well, I I, kind of judge things based on my experience and what I I think is right and what I think Jesus would do. What would Jesus do in this situation? Well, that's a very loose type of thing to look to as a leader because uh, cultures can change and thinking can change. But if you have a standard, and that's what we're talking about, is the Bible, the scriptures we hold in our hand, is that a trustworthy standard of what God actually said, what Jesus Christ actually did, and significantly, what does he say and what does he say for us? So that theological term is the inerrancy of scripture. That means is the scripture without error. So what do we hold in our hand now in 2023? Is that exactly what the New Testament writers wrote in 30 to 90 AD? Or has it been changed and have men made it say what they want? So inerrancy is crucial and understanding why it is crucial places it as really the beginning that you start from. How can you believe in Jesus Christ if you you don't know what that means to believe? So you have to start with inerrancy. Well, then let's start there, and and I 100% agree with everything you have said so far. I believe, and Jimmy and I feel, that this is what is coming under attack, this inerrancy of the Scriptures. So you touched on it a little bit there, but if you could go into it a little bit deeper for our listeners, what is the inerrancy of the Bible? Well, the inerrancy of the Bible is a understanding of the Scriptures themselves. It is that when God inspired individuals through the Holy Spirit. That's what uh, Peter says was done, is the Holy Spirit inspired individuals to write the actual words, thoughts, ideas of Scripture, always reflecting the personalities, if you will, of the writer, but it was still God writing it. The problem is that by end of the first century, uh, nobody today is still alive. So we have to start looking for copies of what those men wrote. And that's the thing archaeology has shown us is there are no copies of the originals that they wrote. What we do have is copies of the New Testament that interestingly go back in time to 160 A.D. and up to about 300 A.D. So we have actual copies of the original New Testament. The catch is there's a gap there, what, 100 years? In some cases, maybe only uh, 50, 60 years. So how do we know that those copies that we can now still hold in our hand, and actually we hold about 5,800 of them, 
are they really what was written by the Apostle Paul or John or Mark or Matthew? And here's the interesting or significant thing. We can trust it because even in that second century, there were people who were reading the copies who would have been told by their parents, by their grandparents, no, that's not what he said. We heard what he said. But there is no record of anyone questioning these copies in that second century and third century. So they're reliable. And yet followers of people, for instance, follow Plato, and they say his writing is so marvelous. He is amazing. Well, Plato wrote in 400 B.C. Today we have seven copies of his writings. We don't have his originals, but those copies come from about 900 A.D. So there's an incredible gap between Plato's writings and the copies we have should make us more questionable how authoritative are they. And yet people never question Plato, but they question the scriptures that only has a gap of maybe 100 to 200 years between original and copies. So we can trust our scripture. Now the key is that they were written in the New Testament in Greek, in the Old Testament in Hebrew and and just a few chapters in Aramaic. But um, how do we know what, when I look at my English Bible, or if I live in Germany, I look in my German Bible, how do I know I'm reading, reading a correct copy? And that's what's significant to note, is that we have found ancient manuscripts. We compare them to our translations today in our language, and we see that they reflect every doctrine exactly the same. There's no question about it. So people who, when we say inerrancy, we say that original Greek, that original Hebrew is without error because God wrote it. But we also look and see how God has kept the scriptures coming through the text and the copies from practically the originals to our day. They all are in agreement and absolutely no question about it at all. So you don't need three weeks to study inerrancy. It's very simple. And the scripture itself declares that. It says all scripture is given by inspiration. That means breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the scripture says it's the truth. We have practically, we're almost back in time to the originals. There are no other ancient documents that we have today that are so close to the fellow who originally wrote them. That's inerrancy. We can trust our scriptures today. Well, this is such an important issue. I'm so glad you're here to speak on it. It's such a slippery slope, and we see there's such small differences, and sometimes it may seem like you're splitting hairs, but that slippery slope turns into a wishy-washy view of Scripture that, like you said previously, could be anything you want it to be. Well, uh, if, if we could, if we could just relate this to Bible prophecy, we talk about prophecy on this program, and we'd look at it not as an allegory, but as a literal God giving us a gift. He's letting us know what's going to take place in the future and the inerrancy of scripture this does relate to our study and how we are to view bible prophecy doesn't it oh absolutely in fact a secondary support of the fact that the scriptures we hold in our hand is its prophecies that god has given to us first of all so many have been fulfilled and yet about a third of them still have yet to be fulfilled in the future prophecy is crucial because it proves that the scriptures god wrote 
are the truth and that God is God who knows the future and can record it for us. I, I think what you said is, is is so important in so many ways. Uh, we come to the book of Revelation and these modern movements are playing down the prophecies of that and say, oh, they're just, you know, kind of spiritual thoughts. No, they aren't. They're God's actual words. And interestingly, as you end your New Testament, it, you come to the end, it says, I testify, this is John writing, I testify every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. And if any man shall take away the words of the book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city from the things which are written in the book. That's a prophetic book, and it warns, don't change it. And men have been following that from those first copies on to this day, showing accuracy of recording it. And ironically, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in, in my lifetime have verified that copies that we have of the Bible today agree in total with those. And most of those were written in maybe 200, 100 B.C. So we actually got documents back then of the Old Testament that confirmed that what we're reading today in our Bible is still the truth. God has preserved it for us, and we can trust the copies we hold in our hand. Uh, I, I hear so often these people say, well, how can I know I can trust it? Well, read it, and you'll see, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's what God says, the Word of God, not the Word of some leader who we're following. We have to be in the scriptures, and God will speak to us if we're a believer, if we're a follower. I don't know if you're going to understand it or not, but if you're a believer, God will speak to us through it, and the Holy Spirit will guide us in understanding of prophecy. And prophecy is exciting because we're living in the days that a lot of those prophecies seem to be coming exactly fulfilled now. Dr. Rob Congdon of Congdon Ministries International. We appreciate you so much being on the program, and we look forward, and I promise you we will be talking to you about this again soon in the future. Well, I'll look forward to that time, and I always enjoy being with you and your listeners. May the Lord bless you, Rick. we got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy Dion, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, unbelievable half hour that we just had. Uh, David Dolan on Iran, Dr. Rob Congdon on the inerrancy of the scriptures. Uh, give his website again and, and how to get in touch with him. Jimmy, his website is CMI, that stands for Congdon Ministries International. So that's cmi-tv.org. And that's a site that you can go to. We'll link to it from our website. And uh, another website where you can get a lot of material, Rick, is our own website. Certainly so. If you go to prophecytoday.com, not only can you find the aforementioned link that I just told you about, but, you know, we put up news stories ourselves. We put up uh, archives of the radio program. We have our daily devotions. You could sign up for those or just go and read them yourself. Jimmy, you can also go to our bookstore, and there we have tons of material, both in book form and CD form and audio form, and we're putting up more and more digital content as well that you can download. These are just great ways to study Bible prophecy, and of course, Jimmy, it also supports our ministry. Yes, it sure does. That's prophecytoday.com. 
Well, today we're going to begin our study of the book of Daniel as it relates to the overall study of God's plan through the ages. Daniel deals with the member of the human family known as the Gentiles. Remember, there are three members of the human family, Gentiles, Jews, and Christian. God has a plan for each of these members of the human family. In the book of Daniel, there are some very practical passages. And of course, Daniel is a book of prophecy. Prophecy focused on the Gentiles. There's a key phrase that is found in Daniel, and it is the times of the Gentiles. We begin our study today in Daniel chapter 1. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Daniel, if you will, with me. The book of Daniel. Now, reminding you that indeed what we have learned thus far, there is a philosophy of history that gives us a systematic interpretation of the past, that gives us the whole scope of history, the past and the future, that helps us to coordinate and make certain that these, and there is meaning and purpose in how we put history together and understanding how that happens and that there is an ultimate end to history. Uh, And that is key to understand where we're going to go. The three questions that Jack Wurtzen used to ask, where did I come from or where did you come from? Why are we here and where are we going? Three important questions which really lay out the understanding of time and history. His story, Genesis 1-1, Revelation 20, uh, verse uh, verse 11, uh, when all the earth is burned up and we move into eternity future, which is not, does not include time. And then we talked about the three members of the human family, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. From Adam to Abraham, that's a 2,000 year period of time in the Bible, that's Genesis 1 to 12, and there were only Gentiles upon the face of the earth. From Abraham to the apostles, another 2,000 year period of time in Scripture, that would be Genesis chapter 12 to Acts chapter 1. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit baptized believers into the body of Christ. That established the third member of the human family, the church, and that would be from the apostles to the Antichrist. And so you can use those four personalities, Adam, Abraham, apostles, and Antichrist, to see how God has a plan, a systematic plan going through history. We need to understand that plan, God's plan throughout all of the ages. We're coming now to the first book that is a timeline for one member of the human family. Next session, we'll look at the book of Ezekiel. It's a timeline for the Jewish people. And then finally, our final session, we'll look at Revelation, a timeline for Christians, but also includes the other two members of the human family as well and has a purpose of helping us to understand what will happen with the Jews, with the Gentiles, and with the Christians. God has a program for each member of the human family. Sometimes they overlap a bit, but nobody is two members of the human family. You're either a Gentile, a Jew, or a Christian. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, two people at enmity with each other, Gentiles and Jews, a wall of petition between them. When that wall was removed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, two people became one, and those would be Christians. So there's no such thing as a Messianic Jew or a completed Hebrew. If a Jewish person gets saved, that person is a Christian. 
If a Gentile person gets saved, that person is a Christian during the church age, from the time of the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, to the rapture of the church. In those parameters, day of Pentecost, rapture of the church, the Christians are made up of Jews and Gentiles who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now that period of time would be referring to the church or the bride of Christ. As we go now to the book of Daniel, our efforts are going to be to look at the timeline for the Gentile people. Uh, We've looked at the overall timeline. I did that as I traced from Adam all the way to eternity future. And thank you for being so patient with me as we went through that. But, uh, you know, people tell me, DeYoung, you go so fast. Well, that is true. But you got it all in your mind through your eye gate, your ear gate, And if you're taking notes, your touch gate, you got the information in your brain, in your database. You'll remember it. You'll never forget it. You cannot forget anything you've ever put in your mind. That's why it's key to make sure you put only pure things uh, that you read or that you hear. And that's the purpose of God when he puts everything in your mind to bring it back to your attention. The Holy Spirit, John chapter 16, Jesus said, I'm going to go. I'm going to send the Spirit of truth, the Comforter. And when he comes, he will teach you things to come. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and reveal something to you that you've never heard or read before. You've got to hear it or read it to have it in your mind. And then the Holy Spirit does his work of bringing it back to your attention. Memory is perfect always Recall is sometimes a bit more difficult, and at our age, we start to recognize that more and more. Recall is more difficult, but the Holy Spirit steps in, and that's his ministry. Luke chapter 21, you not remember when Jesus sent his disciples out, he said to them this, don't worry what you're going to have to say, what your words will be, or what wisdom you're going to need. I'm going to give you the wisdom, I'll give you the words. But again, I must remind you, you have to hear those words or read those words in order for them to be in your brain so the Holy Spirit can use only that. Holy Spirit doesn't come along and reveal anything that you haven't heard or read before. He, and that's the reason for a daily consistency in studying the Word of God. Now, when we go to the book of Daniel, and let me just give a couple of thoughts to you about Daniel before we start tracing through what I would suggest are the four main prophecies in the book of Daniel. In fact, Daniel is not only a prophetic book, but it's a very practical book. If you remember in Daniel chapter 1, and by the way, I'm not going to try to give an extensive study in Daniel in the 45 to 50 minutes I have. I want to whet your appetite, give you the mountain peaks, and encourage you to get in the Word and study it out for yourself. If I can point out a couple of important factors, I believe that would help your study. But Daniel is very prophetic and very practical. Chapter 1, we see Nebuchadnezzar returning from his sojourn down into Egypt. His father has just died. He is now, he was the uh, crown prince, the heir apparent. He's on his way back to Babylon to become the king of Babylon. As he goes through Jerusalem, taking a shortcut from the Via Maris, which is the roadway along the Mediterranean, crossing the desert and going over into Babylon. 
On the way, he stops by Jerusalem, sees a religiosity he's never seen before. They're worshiping in a temple. They're sacrificing animals. He doesn't all understand all of this. So he takes four young men from the royal family, Daniel, and Ahazariah, and Mishael, and he takes them into the Babylonian captivity. He's going to train them into being one or two or three or four of his wise men. It's a council of advisors who gives Daniel Uh, excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, the advice that he needs to have in making decisions. Daniel and the three Hebrew buddies of his are going to be a part of that. But you'll remember in chapter 1 and verse 8, Daniel says, we have purposed in our heart to do right. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to eat from the king's table. We're not going to drink the king's wine. That food is not kosher. In essence, the word kosher is not there, but that's what he's talking about. He's going to follow the dietary rules that were given to him in the book of Deuteronomy. And so he purposes in his heart to do right, and God blesses that, makes both all four of these young men ten times uh, better looking, ten times more knowledgeable than the ones that were in the training class with them. When you go to chapter 3, Daniel's not on the scene in chapter 3. The three Hebrew buddies are told that they must bow uh, before this image of the beast that was talked about in chapter 2. And if you don't bow, you're going to burn. They said, we're not going to bow, and I don't think we're going to burn. And as you study chapter 2, you said, if we're thrown in, he said, our God is capable of taking care of us. And if he doesn't, but if he doesn't take care of us, we're still not going to bow. Throw us into the fire. Somebody will take care of us. And of course, the Lord himself appeared to take care of them then in the fire. And it was interesting to me, when you study chapter 3, you'll see that they had on long coats, they had on pants, they had socks, they had hats on, and there wasn't even the smell of smoke on their clothing after they were thrown into the fire. In fact, the only thing that burned when they were in the fire was the rope that they used to tie their hands behind them. And so it's amazing how practical and what precious, precious truths there in chapter 3. Chapter 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar was a man who thought the world revolved around him. He had an ego that you would not believe. He was an egomaniac of the first degree. And he said, everything that I have done, the Lord uh, gave him a vision And Daniel had to interpret it again, and ultimately he was saying, you're going to be like a dog crawling around on your hands and knees. Your hair is going to grow long, your fingernails will grow long, the rain will cause your hair to mat like feathers of a bird, and you're going to be that way for seven years until you realize it's not you, it's him. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes out and praises the Most High God, one of the key names for God in the book of Daniel, used five times in Daniel. The Most High God. Look up those sections and read about the Most High God. That's chapter 4. Chapter 6 is another practical passage. It's after the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians have defeated the Babylonians, chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. Daniel goes in now under the Medes and Persians and their leadership, and he is made the ruler of the governors of Babylon. There are other governors that are going to be under him. They don't like his control over them. They're Gentiles. What's this Jewish boy from Jerusalem telling us what to do for? And so they plot to get Daniel thrown into the lion's den. And of course, Daniel's custom was to pray three times daily, looking towards Jerusalem. He'd go to the window of his room, look out towards Jerusalem, and pray towards the holy mountain of God, the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. That was his custom. 
And he didn't vary that custom just because there was a decree that went out that you don't pray to anybody except the leader of the Medes and the Persians. Well, he was thrown in the lion's den, and indeed those who threw him in the lion's den fell into the lion's den, and they were all eaten up. Uh, their women, uh, the men that threw him in, their wives and their children, etc. Daniel comes out the better and continues to be a leader among the leaders of the world. You remember now the Babylonian Empire controlled the entire world. That was the government, the human government of the world. The Medes and the Persians controlled the entire world. And so Daniel was at that echelon as far as his leadership is concerned. And so those four chapters, chapter one, chapter three, chapter four, and chapter six are very practical passages. This prophetic book of Daniel is, as we've studied today, a very practical book as well. In chapters 1, 3, 4, and 6, we see how the Lord teaches us some very important practical lessons. You might want to go back and study these four chapters again to learn these practical truths. That would be chapters 1, 3, 4, and 6. As we continue our study of Daniel next week, we'll look at the prophetic passages that deal with the Gentile people down through history from Daniel's day some 2,500 years ago up until today. Next week, we'll look at the times of the Gentiles. It's the time that we're living in today. You don't want to miss that study. Please be sure to join us. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We've got to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will wrap up the program by taking a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Nigerian Christians have received letters from Muslim extremists threatening attack. And they're taking it seriously. Since May, over 450 believers have been killed in targeted attacks across northern Nigeria. Yet Greg Kelly with World Mission says these threats were sent to Christians in Central Plateau State, which means the attackers are moving south. World Mission sends solar-powered audio Bibles to northern Nigeria. Please pray for the gospel to take root. The media ministry of Sat7 serves as part of a world that has suffered under numerous crises in recent years. Christians in the Middle East and North Africa region face the additional difficulty of persecution for their faith. Rita Amunayer says Sat7 staff have also been impacted as they live in the region and share the hope of Christ. Please pray for God to strengthen the church despite everything happening in the region. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. 
be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, again, I always think, how will the program come together this week? But as I uh, listen to your questions for our broadcast partners, to Ken, to Dave, to Dr. Rob Congdon, and just thinking about these issues that we're dealing with, we both use the Holy Spirit, really, to guide us in uh, our understanding of Bible prophecy. And as we come up with these questions and we are looking at world issues and items. It's because we understand scripture that we're able to do that, correct? That's right, Jimmy. And one thing that particularly struck me today, and we had Ken Timmerman with us, we had Dave Dolan, we had extra Dave Dolan because he stayed with us into that second half hour. But one thing, and we've talked about this in the past, one thing that we want to get out there is it's not a single event. There's not just one thing taking place maybe in Israel or maybe this in Europe or maybe this here. But Jimmy, you look at our broadcast partners talking to us about news taking place around the world. We talked about NATO, which uh, would be the military arm of the European Union at this present time. We talked about Turkey and and the role that they're playing in setting the stage right now around the Middle East and Europe. We talked about Russia, China, and Iran coming together, an alliance that we've talked about many times. You know, Jimmy, we also talked with Dave. We talked about the politics in Israel that are creating the stage, creating the scene, all these things coming together. If it was just one thing, it it might be easier to overlook, but they're all moving in unison to a spot where they are preparing. And we say this all the time, but this is exactly what's happening. These events are setting the stage for what we see in Scripture to be fulfilled. That's so true. You know, when you look at it, it would if it would be interesting if we were waiting on one event, but all of these events are kind of circling and the stage is being set, as Dad used to say. Well, I started the program today talking about false teachers and false prophets, and you and I have had in-depth conversations about this, and uh, we talk about issues that are confronting the body of Christ. And to me, this is a major issue. And as I watch basically on social media and our conversations with other ministries and pastors, uh, I watch the the issue of the inerrancy of the scripture that is being questioned. And I always think about this, Rick, you know, you had a conversation with a friend of yours about isn't the only thing that's important is just that people accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But it's not the only thing, is it? No, it's not, Jimmy, because you look at it, you need to have a real relationship. Your salvation needs to be grounded in an authority and a faith and a belief and not just a wishy-washy feeling, but a belief, or it's not going to last. And of course, we're not here to judge people's salvations, but the Bible says that you will see fruit, and you will grow if you are a Christian. You will continue to grow, and in order to do that, you need to have correct doctrine. You need to know how to study the Scripture. Yes. Jesus said, a tree is recognized by its fruit, Rick. Matthew 12, verse 33. When looking for fruit, Here are three specific tests to apply to any teacher to determine the accuracy of his or her teaching. What does this teacher say about Jesus? 
In Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, Jesus asked, Whom do you say I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for this answer, Peter is called blessed. In 2 John 9, we read, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. In other words, Jesus Christ and his work of redemption is of utmost importance. Beware of anyone who denies that Jesus is equal with God, who downplays Jesus' sacrificial death, or who rejects Jesus' humanity. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Jimmy, the second test that we want to look at is, does this teacher preach the gospel? The gospel, as defined as the most important event in all of history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And, you know, I see this all the time in social media, uh, people saying nice sounding statements like, God loves you, God wants us to feed the hungry, or God wants you to be wealthy. And these are not complete messages of the gospel. Paul warns us in Galatians 1.7, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. No one, not even a great preacher, a great teacher, has the right to change the message that God gave us. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. That's Galatians 1.9. And the third aspect of determining whether someone is a false teacher or a false prophet. Does this teacher exhibit character qualities that glorify the Lord? Jesus said to beware of such people and that we would know them by their fruits. Matthew chapter 7 verses 15 through 20. You know, as we study this, Rick, we study other books of the Bible that were written specifically to combat false teaching within the church. Galatians, Second Peter, First John, Second John, Jude. It is often difficult to spot a false teacher or a false prophet. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. And a lot of people don't know that verse, Rick. And his ministers they masquerade as servants of righteousness. That's Second Corinthians eleven fifteen. Only by being thoroughly familiar with the truth will we be able to recognize a counterfeit. Rick, I think it's so very important. And really, that message that you were talking about, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is so very important for the body of Christ today. It certainly is, Jimmy. And this ministry was founded on teaching the Bible, on looking at Scripture, and understanding what the Scripture has to say. Not what we have to say as teachers, but what the Word has to say through us. You know, I like the fact that Dr. Schmidt said last week, we can for sure know that you're in a good church if the gospel is preached, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to the Father except through his Son, Jesus. And that's the message of salvation. Rick, thanks for doing the hard work on the program this week. I really, truly appreciate the job that you've done and alerting as we work to alert the body of Christ about the issues that are at hand and the times in which we're living. As always, Jimmy, I'm thrilled to do it. Folks, until next week, I always say this, and Rick, we believe it. 
With everything that we see happening, we can't be far away from the rapture of the church. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.